Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Mi gente, you know each week I drink a different wine and give you my honest opinion of what I think and try and give you more backstory on them. So when I got the wines from Cesoles Wine Company, I was really excited to try them because the owner of the label is a first-generation Mexican-American and he has created these blends based on people in his life who he loves. So from the rosé for those with a sweet palate to the depth of the Chianti-like red blend, Cesoles wines are all reasonably priced. They're all under $20 with the exception of one of the red wines. And they are all beautiful on the tongue. So not only will you not have to spend a lot, you're going to get a great quality of wine. So although the rosé is a bit sweet for me, the white blend I absolutely love and is perfect for a hot summer day. So head over to their website, which is the number six, soles, S-O-L-E-S dot com. And guess what? They are giving the listeners of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast an extra 30, yes, I said 30% off. So if you go to their website and order at checkout, just enter wine and chisme and you will get your discount. Let me know what you think of them. And thank you, Cesolis Wines, for sponsoring this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. All right. When I decided to interview Dr. Patel and talk about CBD, I must admit that I had tried it before, but didn't really know what I was doing and never really felt like it worked. And when you are in as much pain as I'm in every single month, all you wanted to do is go away by any means necessary. So when I got my first bottle of Doc Patel's CBD oil, I was a little bit skeptical, to be perfectly honest. Mejente, when I tell you it made the debilitating cramps that I get every single month more manageable for me, that is nothing short of a miracle. And the thing that makes all of this cooler is the fact that Doc Patel's allows you to have a one-on-one consultation with Dr. Patel herself so you can discuss what you're looking for and have an actual doctor help you determine what product and what dosage is right for you. And for my Wine and Cheese Men listeners, they're offering an extra 5% off whether there is a sale or not. All you have to do is enter Wine and Chisme at checkout, and there you go. You get your discount. So let me know if you decide to get it and how it works for you. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanges. Before I get to my guest this week, I want to give a shout out to the Netherlands. Outside of the United States, the Netherlands has downloaded the Wine and Chisme podcast more than any other country. I am surprised too. Rounding up the top five are Mexico, Honduras, and Argentina. So thank you so much for listening and please make sure to connect with me online and let me know your favorite episode. I mean, maybe we can get a friendly competition going. Let's see if the Netherlands can hold on to that lead. (laughs) But on to my guest this week. My guest is Hannah Martin. Hannah is the founder of Wokespace Marketing, a digital marketing agency. She is a business coach with the mission of changing the status quo of business by helping women of color and of marginalized communities become empowered business owners. She is a second generation Cuban American, which has largely influenced her outlook on the importance of community building and empowerment of marginalized communities. Hannah grew up in the affluent community of Laguna Beach in Orange County, California. She now resides in San Diego, where she started working in in the local nonprofit sector and has consulted with various nonprofits in their marketing strategies and digital presence. Hannah has recently become part of the TEDx family and led a digital TEDx talk through UCSD 
called Latinas and the New American Dream. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Well, happy Wine and Cheese Wednesday, Hannah. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I am well. I'm excited to have you here because you've been doing really a lot of super cool things. So if you hear anything like random in the background, my dog is apparently having an allergy attack. So, <laughs> well, we have that in common today. <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps sneezing since we walked in, but... Um, I'm really excited to have you here. We met actually through We All Grow Latinas, and it was you talking about your TED Talk, which we will definitely get into later. I'm super excited. I got to watch it. You know, there's so much good information for anybody, but for particularly people who want to learn about who is driving the small businesses and in this economy, um, what's happening within the, you know, Latina small business owner, all of that's just a lot of really good information. But before we get to the chisme, we always got to start with the wine. So I know you're not drinking today because you already had your last cider. (laughs) I know I'm kicking myself. (laughs) (laughs) I know I need to let people know, be prepared. But I today I am drinking a Seis Soles wine. It's their white blend. And this one is, and they're they're actually located in Lodi, California, which Lodi apparently is like a growing area for wine. So this one it says this is a blend of 60% Albariño and 40% Grenache Blanc. I'm super excited. I've tried this type of wine before and I've not the white. I had the rosé. It's a little sweet for me, mm-hmm. but when I talked to the creator of this label cuz this is a brand new label. Like they're only a few it's months a beautiful old. Beautiful bottle too even. Oh my gosh, these bottles, I swear I'm probably going to keep them. They're so gorgeous. I would. I'd so put like beautiful. flowers in them or something. Yeah, they're so beautiful. And so he said that this one isn't as sweet. So let me, salud. Salud. (laughs) Oh, it definitely is not as sweet. Oh, that tastes really good. I like that. Especially, you know, it's a little warm here today. I know you're in Mm -hmm. San Diego. It's a little warm here today. So on a warm day, um, this is like a perfect type of wine. So really excited. I can't wait to have him on. He's actually going to come on. To the podcast one day but you know one thing I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the wine and I don't know if you could see right here there's a little wine bottle even that is it. so cute I just noticed that right now isn't that cool I love that I love that too that's really that's really awesome design. and you know what even right here it looks like it's the top of a wine bottle mm-hmm Okay, I know, so if you guys, obviously people cannot only hear what we're saying and not see this, but that just means you need to go look at it. (laughs) (laughs) You need to get your own. (laughs) You need to get your own. I have mine, you need to get yours. All right, now I got to the wine, it is time to get to the chisme. So Hannah, are you ready to get down with the chisme? I'm always ready for the chisme. You ready to spill the wine? (laughs) (laughs) We don't spill the tea here, we spill the wine. Spill the wine. But it's like pouring one out, like it's not a waste. (laughs) Never. That is alcohol abuse. (laughs) Uh, So let's get started. You are a second generation Cuban American, uh, and you grew up in Orange County. You grew up in Laguna Beach. Tell me how closely, because Laguna Beach is a very, it's not a very diverse area. No, it's very white. It's very white, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, how closely were you connected to your, how did you kind of keep connected to your culture growing up in that area? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, many Latinas or people, Latinx people are, we learned the value of family very early. And for me, that's really where it was. But truthfully, I didn't really come into my own identity as a Latina until I went to college in LA. And I went to one of the most diverse schools in um diverse liberal arts colleges in the nation. And that's where I was like, oh, 
this is where it's at. But when I was younger, I mean, it was hard. I always felt different. I always felt like um, it wasn't quite the place where I belonged. And I have a twin sister. So I was also growing up with someone like right next to me. And we both had a very similar experience of feeling that difference all the time. Right. So obviously Latinx people and Hispanic people come in all different colors. We are not Mm -hmm. defined by color, right? But there, because there's no one way to be Latinx or Latina, however you identify yourself. But you are a very white passing Latina, a white Mm -hmm. Tina for, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you will. And with with a name like Hannah Martin, that can really kind of, people can completely like bypass any sort of cultural identity you have. How did you see yourself growing up or how do you feel like people saw you growing up being a white passing Latina with a name like Hannah Martin? You know, like I asked my parents so many times, why is my name Hannah? And no, actually no one knows. Like there's no real reason, which is funny because both me and my other sisters, we have stories for both of them. My other sisters are Mia and Sienna and Mia comes from a Spanish poem and she's Mia Rose. And then my sister Sienna is my mom. My mom's side of the family is Italian. So it's the city in Italy. But for Hannah, yeah, it's, it's also Hannah Christina, which is, you know, like Chris, or Christina and Hannah, it's like this Jewish name with this Christian name. <laughs> so there's a lot of questions about my name, but I think growing up as like a white passing Latina, I have a really interesting um, experience with race and ethnicity because half of people see me as white and half of people see me as Latina. And honestly, I know how people see me and I can tell based on how they treat me because there's a very different perspective in that of what people think I'm capable of and so being at that intersection being either one way or the other I I get both experiences all the time and you know I feel like a lot of people talk about this too being mixed it's like you're either not not Latina enough or you're not white enough and there's never really a winning space it's always one or the other no I completely can relate to that in regards to because even if you're not fluent in Spanish you're not Mm -hmm. you, you know we always judge each other so harshly. And that's something I think as a community, we need to freaking get over. Yeah, which I don't speak Spanish very well. I grew it, I, I learned it in school. And I wish that I had grown up speaking Spanish, but I think also that's a lot of things that people experience being second gen is there's this pride in being American that it's like, no, we, we will learn the ways of this nation. And so I lost out on that opportunity. What do you feel like when you went to school? Because obviously, it's sometimes it's not even just the way that you look. It's the way, like, the name, right? The whole name. My nephews have a very white-sounding last name. Actually, their full name is very, they're like very, very white-sounding. You wouldn't really be able to tell that they were, their dad is white, their mom is Mexican. You wouldn't really be able to tell. And I'm, they know, they know, and they always joke that every time they call me, I'm always... I'm always eating beans and rice at some point, almost every time they call me and I'm like, (laughs) it's easy. Just that's when you caught me. What do you, what would you say? Were there things that helped kind of form how you saw yourself outside of your home? Like with that you were involved in within your community itself or extracurricular activities at school that form because I know you said you didn't really come into your identity until college but prior to that what were the things that you were forming between what you look like and who you knew you were culturally or did that even was that something that even crossed your mind prior to going to college I think I was really resistant to it at first um, because like you said I didn't know this then, but we look very different. There's a lot of different versions of what it means to be part of the Latinx or Hispanic heritage. And I remember, I'm ashamed of this now, but like, I think it shows my growth. I said to my dad at one point, like, I don't look like, and I said the cleaning lady's name. And it's just like, that's what my idea was growing up in this white area, that that's what Latinx people look like. And again, like, I'm ashamed to say that now, but Then my dad was like, well, well, of course you don't look like her. You don't have to look like her. You don't have to look like anyone. You just are Latina. And I think from a young age where I really did um, bond with my own culture was through food and cooking because my dad's a really good cook. 
And I think that we take this kind of through a lot of different cultures, especially being second gen. It's like, these are the things that we get to pass down that are easier to talk about. You know, I can't, it's hard for me still to ask my dad or um, when my abuelos were alive to ask them about Cuba because it's just so painful. There's a lot of pain associated with that, but we can talk about food. You know, it's about nourishing one another. It's about giving that love in another way. So always since I was young, you know, I always wanted to help my dad in the kitchen. I always wanted to learn how to make the food. And still now I think that's a big way of how I show my love, whether or not it's, it's Cuban food, you know? So, and I find myself in the quarantine, like making black beans a lot. <laughs> it just has this like special kind of calming effect on me. Yeah, exactly. It just, it tastes like home. Like this is home in a bowl. What do you mean? Like black beans and rice. <laughs> but I think that um, for, I was resistant. So there wasn't a whole lot, honestly. But what kind of brought me home and kind of segued into college, actually, I've always been um, a feminist and associated with those kinds of beliefs. And I started a, a feminist club in high school. But even then, I think it was, I still was kind of ascribing to this white feminism that didn't really understand the intersection of it all. And that didn't really become apparent until there were like big racial issues at my school of, that really exposed kind of the... The privilege of a lot of people and then moving into college seeing how important that was for a lot of people and that there was this whole world outside of this this white neighborhood that I lived in for so long. So you after you go you know go through high school what college did you end up going to do you mind if I ask? Yeah it's uh, Whittier College. Okay Whittier College. I always I have this like running joke but it's actually true it's not even a joke that um, a lot of, especially first-gen Latinx people, the holy grail for immigrant parents, like especially Mexican parents in this, is going to UCLA. Like, you go to UCLA, mm-hmm. that's like, yeah, that's like the holy grail. Oh, my gosh, my child has made it. I've been the best parent in the world. So I think, yeah. <laughs> and I think in Texas, where I lived for a while, it's going to UT. You know, yeah. Go, yeah. You're a Longhorn. I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm like A&M, but it's really UT. <laughs> <laughs> so you end up going to, to Whittier College. What experiences, because I know you said that that's where you kind of came into yourself at that point, which I mm-hmm. think a lot of young people do, right? And right. like you're growing up, you're looking at the world through your parents' eyes of how they've taught you. And then once you step outside of your parents' house for the first time, like truly outside of where they can kind of control the, control your environment when you go to college, that definitely exposes us to a lot of things that we never thought we would be exposed to or we didn't know was out there. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that experience in regards to how that opened your eyes in, in regards to who you are as a Latina and as a woman. Yeah. Well, honestly, too, talking about, you know, being, seeing everything through your parents' eyes from a young age, I, I don't know how much of that I really got from my parents, to be honest, because my parents got divorced when I was like super young, like a couple of months old. And so I had both houses all the time and they were both working parents. So my dad is an entrepreneur and started his own business. And so he was always working a lot and he was working to provide for the family. And my mom was also doing the same because they were divorced in those two households. So I think that's also where that kind of delayed response almost comes in of like owning all of that. Cause we had our family time for sure. And that was a huge value growing up, but to see also just like working hard became a value of my own, seeing both my parents work so hard. Um, But then going to college, I think what it was, I think it's something like half of the college is either Latinx or Hispanic heritage, or um, a a large population of first gen. And I was really part of the activist space a lot in college. And I think just like learning how those issues really truly affected people, because I had been shielded by my own privilege of what that actually looks like and what it means. And because of the pain that's associated with those stories, I hadn't really heard a whole lot. I didn't really know what it meant and all the sacrifices that my family had been through, but to hear them spoken about, you know, in activist spaces was like, oh, that's why I get to be where I am. And really needing to own that to say, to give credit where it's due to my family and the sacrifices that they made, I think is really where it hit home for me. And then also just to see 
people like me doing things that I wanted to do. Like I was, I was part of a, it was a local sorority because they didn't have Greek. And most of us were, are Latina. And so it was just like being surrounded by a lot of these powerful Latinas that, you know, these chingonas, they just wanted to do what they wanted to do and they're going to do it. And that was just so powerful to me because I think growing up, like I've always been a leader. I've always been this kind of trailblazer and taking up that space wasn't always easy. And I couldn't understand why it seemed easier for other people. And I think it's because people saw me differently, but being part of this space in college, it was just so much more like, yeah, we're going to do it. And I'm going to stand next to you and help you do it while you do it. And it was this very different feeling. So I think that kind of support and that kind of inspiration almost too, just like drove me to really need to own this part of myself and my identity and my background. Did you find that it was harder or easier or just as is, like people accepted you just kind of as is, trying to find yourself, you know, within the community that you were in, the activism community, because within our own community, we tend to have a lot of colorism, right? And we, and that's something we need to acknowledge is there is colorism within our community. And whether sometimes it's you're too light or it's you're too dark. And Mm -hmm. it's so it's, it can be a very frustrating thing. Did you find that you had to struggle with that at all? Or was it just a very open type of thing being accepted into that community? I think it was actually pretty accepting. I think the one thing that I usually got tripped up on was not being able to speak Spanish or at least speak it fluently. That's where I got caught is I couldn't be part of certain spaces and I had to just take a step back then and let other people take the front, you know, the driver's seat or whatever and let them own that part because that's something that I I can't offer. So when you think about it, when you go back and kind of think about from growing up through graduating through college, outside of your parents, who would you say your biggest influences were in regards to just the makeup of who you are outside, like, again, outside of your parents, but maybe that has kind of helped you pivot into the woman you are today. What would you, do you think there's a one person, two person, a teacher, a mentor, or peers that have kind of really helped form you into now this Hannah Martin? You know, this calls to mind, I think it was like fourth or fifth grade. I had to write this essay of like, who do you look up to? Who is your mentor? And I struggled really hard writing this paper. And I remember talking to my dad and saying, you know, should I, should I write this about, and I was saying all of these stereotypical like white leaders and it just didn't feel right. I was just saying that because that's what it felt like I should be saying because those are the people we learned about in school. And I was like, dad, I don't want to write about these people. Like they don't actually mean anything to me. And I couldn't understand why. And it's not to say that like it wasn't, it was just because they're, they're white, but it was just, I couldn't really personally identify with any of that. And I think I ended up picking, you know, like some feminist figure or something like that. But now I think that looking back, a lot of me and growing up into who I was, was really based on my abuelos and learning kind of the, like I said, owning that part of me, but learning from them what family means and what love means and what hard work means has been such a journey too. I don't think I knew that in the beginning. And I, again, now, only now am I realizing that I am where I am because of the sacrifices that they made and fully understanding that sacrifice is what made me into the woman that I am and being able to say like, I, I have to, I'm carrying on that legacy of love and hard work and all of that. And that's really where my values lie. No, that's, that's awesome. I know you said you're a twin. Do you feel like, and I'm sure these are things that you guys have discussed. Do you feel like your sister has kind of struggled through the same types of things that you have in regards to identity and culture and finding her place within not only the feminist community, but within the Latinx and Hispanic communities? You know, my twin and I are very different. <laughs> like you've ever since we were little, my mom said, you know, we're like night and day, peanut butter and jelly. If this one likes something, the other one doesn't like it. 
And it's this I whole feel thing. like it's one or the other, right? Like it, yeah, they're either very exactly similar or totally opposite. <laughs> yeah, the exactly the same ones kind of freak me out. I have to be honest. <laughs> identical twins, funny enough, freak me out. <laughs> well, at least yeah, you don't. Identical twins don't freak me out because I have cousins that are identical twins. But it's the like. I can't even say the, it's the, um, the shining that gets in my head. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like you cloned yourself in the womb and I'm not <laughs> supposed to fear you. <laughs> That's terrible. I never thought, I never thought of it that way. And now I'm, I'm never going to look at twins. <laughs> I'm going to call my cousins cause we call them like just Quata or twin. We're like, Quata, Quata. Um, and be like, you scare me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, they scare me for a whole other, you know, thing of reasons, but. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, and I think that, I think my, my sister, my twin sister did struggle with it a bit, but in a very different way, because we are very different. I'm, I've always been, you know, like in leadership roles, I'm very into school, and I always wanted to go to college wanted to be a surgeon at one point, wanted to be everything at one point. And my twin sister is, she's much calmer than I am. <laughs> she's much more introverted. And so I think that the way that she experiences the world is more of maybe an internal battle, but we've talked about it. And I think even then it's interesting because I think this, this battle was almost delayed for her and she didn't quite come up against it until she was ready to bring herself to the world in a way. Because she was bullied a lot as a kid, and I think it had a lot to do with how different we were. And I was someone that was always standing up for myself. I was always very headstrong kind of thing. And so I think people just were, didn't want to mess with me. <laughs> and that's not to say, like, she was feisty as heck. But I think people saw that she was more introverted and maybe even took advantage of that. So that's, I feel like, how she experienced it in the beginning and then just kind of retreated into herself. and it's taken a while for us to really talk about it, but I think she had a very different experience of school because of that. Like she was bullied a lot and then, you know, has never really liked school because of it. I can definitely relate to that at some point in my life. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that because obviously we all have our own experiences, right? We all have our different experiences in regards to relating to our culture and who we are, just who we are as people. Like all of our journeys are very, very different. So I appreciate you sharing that. You say that you discovered everything when you're in Whittier College. I would love to hear a little bit more, just not, not necessarily culturally, but as far as your college experience, I know that in your TED Talk, you talk about your first job when, you're, when you were 16 and the struggle you went through that. I would love to hear a little bit more about that in regards to when you're 16 and you feel like, did you feel like people were viewing you? Because I wasn't really sure how you were talking about that, so I'd love to get some clarity. People were viewing you as a young girl, or do you think that people were viewing you as a young Latina girl? Because if you weren't, like, or was it, or were people even aware unless you were saying something to them? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think back then I saw them viewing me as a young girl. I was the youngest at I think most of my jobs usually. And I think usually it was my age and my gender that made people treat me the way that I did. And maybe maybe my, my ethnicity has something to do with it. But I think at that age, it wasn't yet clear. And until, um, like I talked about, I did talk about um, my first job. I'm not sure if that was it, you know, the real retail job that I talked about. But I do think that the job that I talked about where I was a hostess and just for some background for folks that are listening, I started working as a hostess. I think I was, I think I must've been 18 at that time. And um, after working there for a couple of months, I had trained a couple of girls to bring on for the summer and they stopped scheduling me. And the girls that I had trained were like the prettiest girls at high school. They were on the volleyball team in my TED talk, I mentioned that they were like the girls asking to cheat off me in math class. You know, like we all know the stereotype kind of thing. I, I, not to stereotype those girls, but that's how it felt like to me. And then I stopped being scheduled and I couldn't understand why that happened. And I do feel like that's what it, it had to do with that. I felt like 
maybe management even saw that these were the stereotypically pretty girls. You know, you want a pretty hostess. You want someone to bring someone in. And being in Laguna Beach, that's what people want. And I wasn't, I wasn't, yeah, I, I was 17, 18, something like that. And I think, you know, I wasn't doing my makeup every day for work. I wasn't the kind of girl to be straightening my hair every day. And I have this curly hair and I looked different than I think what they were looking for. I wasn't yet like this exoticized Latina that maybe they would have been interested in. And that's a whole other thing, but I, I just wasn't, I think, what they were looking for. And so they just kind of stopped scheduling me. They used me for what I was good for, which was to train them because I was really good at my job and then let me go in a way. So once you graduated with your college, what was your work experience like in regards to that was that started to lead you down the path of wanting to do something for yourself because I know you said that you've experienced these types of things you know at various jobs outside once you finish college so I would love to hear a little bit more about that in regards to what types of things you were experiencing how do you think people were viewing you when you were going through these things because obviously we have to again kind of going back to we need to recognize our, our different privileges and everything in regards to who we are and what we're portraying to the world right so I would love to hear like how you felt because nobody knows and nobody can disregard your experiences because you're the only one who went through them. So I would right. love to hear just a little bit in regards to how you felt post-college, your work experiences were in regards to how you were treated and what the factors were, what you sure. felt the factors were within that. Sure. So I, uh, when I graduated college, I graduated with a degree in political science. And when I was in college, I had thought maybe I would work in campaigns because that felt really salient at the time. I changed my major from wanting to be a surgeon pre-med bio to political science with the 2016 election. And when I joined campaigns, it was still really male dominated. And I remember having this conversation with, I don't know who I thought I was, but I was an intern <laughs> on a campaign trail. And at one point I went to the campaign. You were bold. That's what you were, right? Oh, I was old <laughs> always have been <laughs> I went to the campaign the campaign manager and I was like hey it was for a gubernatorial campaign too like big deal right I thought I was big boss or something oh, yeah and I, I told the guy who had helped me get the job like hey we need to make these changes and he was like yeah 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 and I was like fine and went to the campaign manager and was like we had this whole um we had a whole policy on sexual assault and like how we were going to change things and I was like, the way we wrote it is not very considerate. Like, it's actually not in line with what's going on on the ground. And I was like making suggestions. And I remember him just like swiveling around in his chair and being like, we need to what now? <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, this space is not ready for someone like me. And that's when I moved into nonprofit. So after, um, after graduating, I was like, okay, I'm going to work somewhere in activism and I landed in nonprofits. I was doing communications and marketing um, for a, a nonprofit here in San Diego. And it, it was, I worked there for 18 months before I quit. And my experience was, was difficult to say the least. I, I worked there originally as a part-time like assistant level kind of job. So I, anyone that works at nonprofits, first of all, we don't go into it for the money, right? No, wanna, I've worked lots of nonprofit and right. you work, you wear many hats. Yes. You can yes. You work a lot of hours. If you're looking to get rich, nonprofit's not. Not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say the least. So I took the job part time thinking that, you know, I'll work my way up and we'll figure something out. So from the beginning, I was still advocating for myself being like, you know, I deserve full time work. I'm doing really good work here you need me, la la la, whatever, taking on projects. And at first I thought that, you know, I'm, I'm coming up against this, this kind of oppositional force because this, everyone goes through this. Like I'm straight out of college, I'm young. I get it if they don't quite trust me. But then I started noticing the patterns where it was like, no, I'm actually doing really good work. And I have even the data to show it. I have the stories. I have the accolades. I have, I'm bringing in the money too. 
And at some point it just became like, there was also this, this parallel conversation that was going on because in the nonprofit sector, as in many places right now, there's this conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And we're all trying to figure out how to make this an important thing in our own space. And you would think that nonprofit spaces would be an easy conversation to have this because we're doing this, this on the ground activist work. It tends, to really, be, it tends to be the most difficult place because it, it, yes. it's so political. Yes, it is so political. And also, I worked at a philanthropic um, nonprofit, but anyone that accepts donations, I think it's the same thing. The money that's coming in is very privileged and doesn't understand DEI and may not even care, maybe has not even thought of it that way. And in, in order to kind of decolonize philanthropy, that means that we need to take stock of our own privilege. And that's a very uncomfortable conversation. That's a very political conversation that is very slow to happen in nonprofits. So as we're having this parallel conversation, we were literally hosting events to expose the inequities within nonprofits. We were telling our partners, you know, did you know that people that work in nonprofits often live off food stamps? Did you know that people that work in nonprofits often don't make a living wage and don't have health insurance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, I'm experiencing all the things that we're talking about. I barely was staying off food stamps. I got applications several times for food stamps from the government. And I was working for jobs and I didn't have health insurance. And my boss would even say to our partners, it was super uncomfortable. They would say, you know, Hannah's not working full time and she doesn't have health insurance. And we know all of these things and we're trying to do better. And that, it was just these, these platitudes that I kept getting. And so when you come up against that for so often, and I know the work that I'm doing is good, I have the proof to say it. At a certain point, I just realized that there was a ceiling for me there. And after, I mean, the nature of my work allowed me to work with other nonprofits too and consult with them. And after coming up against this time and a time again, and then seeing how my mentors or my boss or, you know, anyone that was part of this institution was also speaking about women of color, it, it was just so disheartening that it was like, this is only weighing me down. I quit with this like mantra in my head of like, I, I have nothing, I have nothing left to lose, but the weight of this job it just became something that was draining me. And I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about not being ready to quit or anything. It was just like, that's it. The thing I think a lot of people don't know when it comes to nonprofits is not, there's like an unwritten rule that your overhead should cost less than 20% of the actual revenue that's coming in. And the challenge with that, unless you're a very large nonprofit bringing in millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, is, you know, a majority of nonprofits are very small, are very small. So that's why they can't. Now, again, it's not in law, but that's what a lot of times donors look for. And there's even websites that you can see, like how much... Yep is going towards overhead. And if you have a grant, a, you know, a company that gives grants or government that gives grants or donors, they tend to look at those sites to see how much is over go, going to overhead. And if you're a, on the smaller side nonprofit, that means if you're doing, say you're only doing I don't know, and this isn't and this is not even a small nonprofit, but if you have a million dollars coming in in revenue, right? That means 200,000, you have $200,000 a year to, for operating expenses. Mm -hmm. That's actually not very much. If you have an office, if you have a staff, if you have, if you're trying to just every, the every day in regards to how everything's operating within the office, whether that's office supplies, um, yep. computers, like all of that's why it's so important that when you have nonprofits, yes, you want to make sure that it's not bloated, but I think it's also in, in regards to what's actually happening. How large is the nonprofit? Because sometimes you have to spend a little bit more to get the right people on board as right. you're growing. And then as you're growing, that overhead tends to come down. But at the beginning, overhead usually is a lot, but it should. 
we're expecting people to do so much. That's why people that work in nonprofit work so many hours because there's a limited amount of funds that is expected to only go to overhead and, and not to go to anything beyond. Right. And, and especially when you have things that are geared towards communities of color, they tend to have even smaller budgets. Yep. Yep. So this is layer upon layer. upon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's this whole, if you want to look more into it, it's called true cost. That's like the whole movement is like the true cost of running a nonprofit is not this 20% kind of, you know, overhead or whatever. And truthfully, like I've seen, I think even I saw it was like the American Heart Association tends to say like 5%. You know, usually you hear the five cents of every dollar is all that goes to our overhead or 95 cents goes to directly to the cause. And people that are making donations are like, oh, that's a good thing. But that is in no, it, it literally cannot be true. Like there is there, the way well, that a lot of it out. is a lot of because I've had to be part of these types of things in regards to right like applying for grants and everything. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is when they're applying for grants, they have to say what's going to what. So part of the grant money can go to overhead if you're right. allocating it. And then sometimes donors can donate money very to go to very specific things. Mm -hmm. So maybe five dollars, five cents of every of your dollar and five cents of my dollar is going directly to pro, you know, to, right. but there might be somebody who's donating saying, okay, I'm donating a hundred grand to go to your overhead costs. Right. You know, they still get a write off and that, and they can specify, I don't, donors can specify where they want their money to go. And if you're not right. aware of that, you can, and you can ask for it in writing where your yeah. money And they legally going. have to abide by that. Yeah. So at what point did you decide, okay, I'm kind of done. You, you were saying you decided to quit and pivot into your own business. Cause you have uh, your own marketing agency called woke space marketing. Mm -hmm. So what's the thing that prompted you to start woke space marketing? You and know, you felt woke W O C women of color. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I got to people let, let everyone know what I'm, what I'm about. But I think the moment was, you know, I, I didn't even know I was going to start a business when I quit. Like I said, it was just, I had had enough and that was it. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to figure it out. And I'd been applying for jobs for some time at that point and hadn't gotten anything worthy of what I was capable of. So actually it, it was the passing of my abuelo that really prompted it for me. Because like I said, I think owning all of the sacrifices that he and my family made has made me who I am and what I value. And something about his passing just really set into me and said, is this really what he would have wanted? And not even in the way of judgment, but he would have wanted you to be happier. And he didn't make all the sacrifice so that you couldn't pursue exactly what you want to do. And so for me, it was like the weight of his passing set in, but then also the weight of like the oppression of the last year and a half set in. And it was just this moment of clarity. And I just remember sitting in the office and the second that I realized it, like every, everyone on the staff was talking still. And I just like everything faded away. And I just like, in my head just was like, this is it. I don't need to be here. And I'm going to go home and write my letter of resignation. Because if I don't, I'm going to come back in and I'm going to keep going through this cycle of like, oh, whenever I get out of here, whenever I figure it out, whenever the next thing comes along. But if I don't make it happen for myself, it's never going to happen. So I wrote that letter that night and just kind of turned it in the next day. So you've said a few times that your family has sacrificed a lot. And then you also said that you didn't really have a lot of opportunity to talk to your, your abuelos in regards to what they endured in Cuba. So how did you learn in regards to the sacrifice? Like, how did you put those things together? Because if you weren't able to talk to them, and I'm sure there's things that you're, I know for my family, there's still things that come out, right? And you're like, what? Nobody said anything like that. Like, what? What the heck? So how do you, how were you able to put those things together and find out what those sacrifices were that they did endure in order to come to the States and give your family this new life? 
from a young age, I was told kind of this storybook version where it was like, we left with nothing but the clothes on our back. And that alone, you know, you, you, as a kid, your things are everything as a kid. <laughs> and I, I couldn't imagine leaving all my stuff behind. I couldn't imagine. And that sounds really like materialistic of me, but I think as a kid, you know, you just love all your toys, you love all your, I don't know. So that alone sat with me for a while, but it wasn't until probably college that these stories just kind of started to come out. Like you're saying, like they just kind of pop out and it would happen at, on holidays where, you know, like we'd all be sitting around and drinking and talking to each other. And sometimes these stories would come out and just the whole room would go quiet. And then whoever's speaking is just telling this story. And we're all listening because we all know this is the moment. And you can't, you can't force this moment. And so the things that I learned, like I learned of I learned that my, my family left the year before my dad would have been enlisted and like legally they would have not been able to leave. And I learned of, well, my dad got really sick that, that soldiers came to the house to claim him. And my abuela shut the door on them and said, Nope, not today, which no idea how she, how she managed that. No kidding. <laughs> so, and like how she had to get medicine on the black market and about the the food stamps that they you know they got like a little booklet of food and my dad doesn't like eggs because he ate eggs for a month and that's all they had to eat and how when my my one of my cousins came over she had to come across one of the rivers in texas because they couldn't get a flight like my like my dad did and learning about those things is really what it keeps me humble first of all but really um it's this puzzle that you kind of put together year after year after year and just these small moments that come out. And even now, I think a lot of the weight of my willow passing is not just his absence, but the absence of those stories. And knowing that I'll never have those those puzzle pieces with me. So you've recently and, and thank you for sharing that because I think that happens with a lot of us, right? There's a lot of us like we find these things, these little nuggets out when we're younger. You hear the, like you said, the storybook version because nothing want, they don't want to be too harsh. And then as we get older, you become part of the adult table, so to speak, and you get to hang out right. with people. So you hear all the, the stories. <laughs> yeah. So you hear all the stories that you didn't hear when you were younger and everything. So I completely, completely relate to that. Speaking of all of that, putting that all together, you recently recorded a TED Talk, a TEDx mm -hmm. Talk with UCSD, right? Through UCSD. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I watched that today. So con first of all, congratulations. Thank that you. Is so awesome. And you should be so proud of yourself. And we'll make sure to put the link to that on the show notes because it's only 12 minutes long. And you pack a ton of information in those 12, 12 minutes. So a lot of you're, you're speaking about the growth of small businesses and how Latinx and Hispanic women are leading that effort. When you were putting that together, based on the work that you've been doing with woke space marketing, and then I'm sure there was additional research that you did in regards to putting that talk together, what was the most surprising thing that you found when you were putting that together? You know, I'm not sure if I would say this is surprising. Like, it's kind of like, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. Because I was doing the extra research. I was trying to find more than just my own experience. You know, I wanted to understand this more global kind of sense of understanding of the issue and I just kept coming across these articles that were just they were infuriating to me because they would be like I said in there you know like we we only talk about Latinx and Hispanic people in labor if we're talking about immigration and that just kept being the story that was told time and time again and even then there were there were so few stories and they kept telling this like the same story would be repurposed across multiple media sources, which is fine. But when that's the only representation, it just became really frustrating. Girl, this is exactly why I started the Wine and Cheese Knit podcast, right? Because we have so many stories to tell. All right. of stories are different. Just like me and my sisters, we all have different stories and we grew up in the same household. And I don't understand, like, it's very frustrating to see our stories be condensed down to kind of a car like cartoonish. Yeah, a caricature um, when we're so much more and, and 
it's very, very, very frustrating. So tell me a little bit more about the things that you found and the things that were most important. So let me, actually, before I have you do that, what I have everybody kind of give me their why, right? And I want to kind of read a, a portion of what you told me your, your why is. And the first thing you said is, I want women of color to feel empowered in their lives. And there's so much power in owning your story and owning your time and making your own living when you own your own business. I want to bring that power and that freedom to more women of color. Representation matters, and I hope to change the status quo of business and make women of color and other marginalized communities the new image of an empowered business owner. That's kind of a perfect encapsulation of what your TED Talk is about. But tell me about the things that within that TED Talk that you did when you're putting everything together, where you felt the most impassioned when you were talking about that. Because obviously the whole thing meant something to you or else you wouldn't have done it. But what do you think within that was the thing that you felt needed to be shared more than anything else? For me, it was the representation of a woman of color who understands her worth and isn't afraid to talk about it. And that's not to say that women of color don't know our worth. Like we're always advocating for ourselves. We're always out here talking about that. But I think we aren't always represented that way. I think, and in in my TED talk, I said something along the lines, like the stories that are often told about us are, are these stories of struggle and the opportunity, the situations of celebrating women of color is around our struggle and we have so much more to offer than struggle you know we have we have that strength in the struggle we have that vibrancy we have real stories to share and we are worth so much more than the struggle I love that quote we are worth so much more than the struggle because it's true now I will say I probably came from a different little bit. I'm like a generation older than you. And so I would say like this, this Gen X, or I'm a Gen, I'm an Xennial, Gen X slash millennial, I guess, because I'm 77 is when I was born. But I feel like the generation behind, like the millennials, they were able to gather this strength Whereas my generation, yes, we were strong, but it was still trying to find our way in the holes because the baby boomers don't want to leave, right? They don't ever want to give it. So <laughs> it was like this thing of just trying to get wherever we could and, and appeasing in a way that I feel millennials don't necessarily have to. And I'm not going to lie, it's sometimes frustrating and sometimes a breath of fresh air. Sometimes like, well, fuck, we didn't have to like, look at what they're doing. And then it's like, Like we could have had it like that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we're of this, this really age where we were on the cusp of technology. Like I had my first cell phone when I was maybe 18 or 19 years old. We didn't, we didn't grow up with computers unless they were like DOS where you had to put in the commands and all of those types of things. Not like today. So it's this mix of frustration and adoration that I think many of us have Mm -hmm. for the generation right behind us. And because many of us didn't have the opportunity to just be like, stand for everything. Like, oh yeah, I know my worth. It's right. No, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about that. The way you talk about money, the way you talk about your worth. And at least I know me and many of my friends didn't have that. And many people I know, we didn't really have that. Some did, um, but many didn't. So it's, I appreciate and admire the fact that you come from that type of space because I'm finding it so much more, so much later in life than your generation. What do you, where do you find your clients seem to struggle the most when you have a client coming in and, oh wait, before I go to that, I'm sorry. How did you get, like, I want to kind of go back to the TED Talk because there is so much information and I want to make sure people go to it. How, but how did you even get a TED Talk? I think that's something that people are like, <laughs> wait a minute, like, how do you, I want to do a TED Talk. How do I do it? Can, can you walk people kind of? Yeah, for sure. And like, as I've been telling people, they're like, oh, I've always wanted to do that. And I was like, well, then go do it. <laughs> And, so and, easy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, yeah. I think um, 
the big skill that you need is really just knowing how to pitch yourself and knowing how to talk about yourself. Um, and I think I credit that being to why I got this talk because it, it really is an easy process. Like I was just, I've been wanting to do a TED talk for five years. I, I wanted to host a TED conference at my college, but we didn't have the infrastructure needed to really pull it off. So ever since then, I've been thinking like, I want to be part of this space. And I saw a friend do a TEDx talk and it was just like, oh, you know what? I could just do that. Like I could just look up where it's going to be next. And if it's in here in San Diego, then I'm going to do it. And so I started looking at, on TED. They have, you know, like upcoming TEDx talks, which the X ones are uh, independently organized. So it's usually with like a town or city or whatever, or a college. So I was like, I know there's a, there's a lot of colleges or universities here in San Diego. So I started looking them up and there was just an application online. It was like, oh, do you want to be a speaker at our next TEDx UCSD? And I was like, yeah, and filled out the application. And yes, I do. Month, <laughs> yeah. Why, thank you very much. I do. Thank you. <laughs> and I think this was like uh, first week of March. And then I heard back from them, I think it was the first week of May and the turnaround was really fast. And I don't know if it's because, you know, with COVID and everything going on, they realized last minute, they're like, we should just do this online. Anyways, uh, within a month, it was, I mean, we're now at the end of May and I've already done it, recorded it, done a Q&A and all of that. So it was a fast turnaround, but I mean, it's really just about knowing how to pitch. And for me, it was being familiar with what kinds of talks are available and what kinds of conversations are happening with TED. So now back to the original question that I was asking. Um, when you're working with people with workspace marketing, where do you find your clients seem to struggle most when they come to you? What's their biggest challenge? Right. Uh, you know, it's funny that you say, like, you were just saying, uh, we, don't, we didn't get to own that worth as much as you do. Because that's actually, I mean, I, I think that's true, but also still there's so much work to be done because that's where my clients have the most issues is, and especially now, um, I officially started my business at the end of February. I've been consulting for years now, but with this business and like helping people get started in their business with workspace marketing, I started really at the end of February. And so I've really only... I've seen the change through the month of March of like who's coming to me to start their business. And I think with COVID going on, a lot of people are realizing this job that I had really actually doesn't provide the security that I hoped it would. Or Isn't like that I, such an eye-opener now? Like all of these things, people are like, oh, I'm doing this because it's stable. It gives me stability. Right. It's this. Yeah. And, and we're finding like something like this and rock on wood, something like this doesn't ever happen again, but right. you know, we just never, we never know. And the fact right. that so many jobs can be wiped out so quickly, I think is an eye opener right. and the way companies are transitioning to be able to have people work from home. I think this is the way we do business is completely changing. Oh, the way we do anything. <laughs> For sure. So, I mean, I always grew up with kind of that, that perspective that a job doesn't give you that security, you know, it might provide you a paycheck, but I think that background that my dad comes from, um, I'm a third generation entrepreneur. So my, my abuelo had his own firm. He's an engineer in Cuba. And when the communist revolution happened, they, they closed it down. And that's when he was like, that's it. We're going to the States. We can have our own companies there. And it was like this slow burn process, but eventually that's really what did it. And then my dad started his own, he's also an engineer, his own firm. And so he started it always with this idea that, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't provide you with the security that you hoped for. Like having this corporate job might cut you a check, but that's really it at the end of the day. And what really matters is not that check. It's that, that security and like knowing your own worth and, you know, being able to set your own ceilings, which is why when you said like, what's your why? That's, that's my why. I want to give people that security and that authority over their own lives. But so when people come to me, it's walking them through the process that they're worth it, that not only are they capable of doing it, but they're really good at it. I think people are more easily will say, I'm really good at my job when they work for someone. But for some reason, we have these hangups that don't allow us to apply that to maybe having our own business, doing the same job and just providing that service and being able to set our own limits. 
it, it, there's this, all these hangups because I think for so long, we've just been told that we're only allowed to exist within this box. And usually that's within like the corporate scene or like whatever job you're working at. Like this is your role. Here it is, whether it's a job description or what people tell you or how they treat you. And being able to break out of that box and say, I can apply this to my own life and make my own money and have my own livelihood is this journey of worthiness. Like that's really how I describe sales is this journey of discovering your own worth and then being able to tell people, this is what I'm worth. And if you want to work with me, if you want what I'm capable of, this is what it is. So if people want to work with you and work with Woke Space Marketing, what are the best places for them to find you? So I have my website, which is wokespacemarketing.com. And again, it's W-O-C-S-P-A-C-E. Um, or on Instagram, I'm just wokespace. So before we go into the questions that I ask everybody, I want to make sure you have the opportunity to share any final words before we go into the quick fire questions. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, I kind of alluded to it, but I just want it to be really clear that I think like everyone's story is important. And a, a lot of what you, what you do on this podcast is help people tell those stories. And that's really what I'm in the business of doing. I think people see marketing and they think, of this traditional masculine energy kind of business bro. And it's about reclaiming that narrative for me about being able to rewrite that and say, it can also be about just telling our stories as powerful people of having our own journey and using that then to empower ourselves. So that's really what my TED talk is about too, is about rewriting that narrative of a story of empowerment. And that's what I do in my business too. All right. Feel better? <laughs> I do. I got that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we go into the questions I ask everybody. So what do you wish you would have known when you started out? And I would say before you started your company, before you started consulting, what do you wish, or maybe just in your career journey, what do you wish you would have known? I wish I knew the power of my own community. I think that when I got started, it was like, I was really nervous how people were going to react to me taking such a bold step and getting started. And really what happened was everyone was like, I always saw this in you and I know you can do it. And I'm so proud of you. And that was just so powerful. And I, I'm ashamed for ever having, you know, almost doubted them in that way. I think we all do though. We all have those. We're our, we're our, own, we're our own worst critics. And when it's, it sucks that we need outside validation, but sometimes we need outside validation at the beginning to be like, okay, I'm on the right track. Like yeah. other people see this in me. Why, why haven't I not seen this in me? So, and I know so many other people can relate. What are you curious about right now? I'm curious about everything. Uh, <laughs> I think right now I'm really curious about, like you said, everything is going to be different after this. And I'm curious about after COVID, I, I'm curious about how can we take this moment? Because I think that a lot of things are falling apart and we'll have to put them back together, right? How can we put them back together in a way that is more equitable, that serves more people? And I feel like people are going to go one way or the other, right? They're going to really, truly kind of internalize the, everything that's happened and try to make changes, whether it's personal or business or just how we treat the planet because I really feel like this is mother way, nature's way of saying like bitches hold up <laughs> you, you guys are trashing me and I'm taking I'm taking my power back I'm taking my planet back <laughs> to an extent or people are just going to act like nothing ever happened and we'll, we'll yeah. try, which I feel like we're, we're seeing in certain areas already right right what is a dream that scares you I think this journey I'm on right now, it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> like, you know, I wake up every day and I'm humbled every single day by my own business. <laughs> but I, it's important. So you, I ask everybody um, what their favorite word is. And you said intuition. Why would you say intuition? I think that often we kind of quiet the voices in our own in our own hearts and minds. And because like you're saying, you said earlier, like we, we don't want to say we want that validation, but it's a lot easier to believe something if someone has confirmed it for you. But this little voice of intuition that kind of drives you in your heart and your mind or whatever, I think is the most powerful thing that we have. 
And like, for me, it's a very spiritual thing, whether it's like, I think that, you know, it's my ancestors or like angels or what, what have you. I think that this is the way that we carry that with us is that little intuition, that little something. And final question that we end every podcast with. What is your favorite type of wine, red, white, or rosé? And do you have a specific kind that you like? Yes, I am a red wine girl. And I like, well, I like a lot of wine, but red wine is my favorite. And I'm usually a Pinot Noir. One of my favorite wineries is Presqu'ile. And they are fabulous to visit. They're in the, um, it's not the Santa Barbara Value. It's in that area, San Maria. Is that what it's called? Anyways, they have a beautiful winery and I love visiting there. I went there for my 21st birthday with my mom and sister. And I just love sitting there and having their glass of wine. Their rosé is really good and their Chardonnay is also really good. <laughs> we'll make sure I'll have you send the, the name, how to spell it and everything so we can include that in the show notes. So if people want to check it out, they can. But Hannah, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your candor and just being able to share what your journey has been thus far. And we look forward to seeing where it takes you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med podcast. As always, you can find resources to our discussion today, including the links to Hannah's social media and website in the show notes. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me via my social media channels, Instagram at the Wine and Cheese Med, Facebook and LinkedIn at the Wine and Cheese Med podcast, because I know you know by now I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheese May, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.